Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nervoretti. This is Stephen Robles and this week we actually have two episodes for you, a part one and part two. And we're responding to comments made by Dr. Timothy Keller, an American theologian and pastor. On today's episode, Samuel Say joins us again as he makes comments on the articles and tweets made by Timothy Keller. And in tomorrow's episode, we actually have Jacob Brunton and Cody Libolt from the New Christian Intellectual Podcast to comment as well. We encourage you, you can watch these episodes on YouTube. Go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. Subscribe there, and you can watch all these and the previous episodes in the God and Government series. Before we jump to the interview with Samuel Say, we want to remind you of impact360.org. They're an incredible organization that has online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to take those online courses. It really gives you a great foundation of a biblical worldview and apologetics. You can get $25 off those online courses if you use the promo code FREEMIND. And don't forget to check out Impact's Gap Year program for rising seniors. You can get the application fee waived by using the promo code FREEMIND at impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Samuel Sayers. Hey, what's up, everybody? Seth the Nerva here. No brother Robles this week, unfortunately. Y'all need to write to him and tell him to get back in the mix because he's just doing stuff like taking care of his family, you know. This guy, he's just slacking. Um, But no, we got two, you know, really important messages, uh, episodes rather, that we wanted to share with you guys. This first one was Sam Say, and then tomorrow we're going to be releasing one with the new our friends from the new Christian intellectuals, Cody and Jacob, on the topic of Tim Keller's thoughts on justice, politics, abortion. I would encourage you to please just um, listen to these two, check out the show notes. I think it's going to be really helpful as you are trying to think through these issues from a biblical perspective. Right now, it can be really difficult. You know, we I look up to to Tim Keller, but I think he's making some, you know, pretty pretty big mistakes in some of his thinking lately on this topic. So this hopefully this will help you, like it has helped us to think through this. So enjoy. Well, good afternoon or morning or evening, whenever you're watching or listening to the Free Mind Podcast. Welcome. Uh, excited today. I have Nerva back in tow with me, uh, riding, ride or die today. But we're uh, with, with our good friend now. I feel like we're becoming good friends. Uh, this has been a regular thing lately with our brother Sammy Say. I, I was thinking, man, you need a hip, you might already have one. Do you have a hip hop name? <laughs> Oh man, I uh, <laughs> uh, Samuel say that already I, sounds a little okay, bit so, okay. So, so for some reason, when I was in high school, I thought that for whatever reason, I thought the nickname Thug Dynasty made sense. Thug Dynasty, <laughs> <laughs> now I didn't quite realize that Dynasty, I suppose, meant several generations, oh, that's funny. or at least several incarnations. So I was my own dynasty, and I called myself. <laughs> I like it, man. Oh, man. You hold all the you hold you you yes. prophesy, and all yes. those generations are within. <laughs> that's all. That's awesome, man. That well, we so we got to start out with this post because I I don't know, man. This one kind of yes. hit me, but if if you, if, you, if first of all, if you're not what. <laughs> If you're not watching us on YouTube, you're missing out, y'all. Because if you're listening and you, but, and you have equal ability, go ahead and migrate over to YouTube and watch because we're going to be throwing some stuff up there today. But this brother here posted this right here, if you can see it. It's, uh, and he said, how much do I love Sense and Sensibility 1995 version? Now, I'm going to be honest. 
I saw that. Nerva got me hooked on that thing. I oh, okay, my good. All time favorite. I was I was worried about where this was going. So now <laughs> you're well, safe. No, you're good. You're I'm safe. Face then. That's good. Yes. You know, I I watched. I mean, for the first time, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and okay. my goodness, I was hooked. I loved it's it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah man. So it, good. I never thought I would be a fan. It, like that was one of our first dates. That, that's how she got me, Sam. I'm gonna be honest, oh. bro. That's how oh, she wow. got me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, she, she, actually, she actually ran from me, but I chased her down. But <laughs> I, I saw on here your comment. Somebody asked you, have you tried the 1995 Pride and Prejudice? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, mm. that is the truth. Now, there is a debate. I don't know which one is your favorite. Out of the Wait, two. I only know that version. No, no, no. This is Sense and Sense, but okay. Pride and Prejudice. Oh. Annie. No, I like the BBC version. No, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice. Well, but yes. Which one do you like better out of this and Pride and Prejudice? Oh, shut <laughs> That's a tough one. It's good, It's man. not, you know, Pride and Prejudice is like a few, ser- you know, It's episodes. got like six episodes yeah, or something and that like that one's like, on the yeah. A&E version. But anyways, you, you need to run. Don't walk, you know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I've, I've only, so I've seen Pride and Prejudice, but I've seen the one, I think the feature film with Karen Knightley, I think. Yeah, uh, that's not that's not even no. Pride and Prejudice. That, that, that's no. what I heard. So I, I had no idea. No, I, I, I read the book. So no. uh, okay, I'll check it out then. It's <laughs> so good. It's nah, so yeah, man, good. it's check classic. It. It's become one of our faves. I'm a sucker for those kind of those kind of movies. I I love that stuff. So yeah, man. Uh, every once in a while, I guess Thug Dynasty likes some uh, romantic uh, period films. So so. Nah, for sure. Well, you have redeemed you've redeemed yourself from the Backstreet Boys thing. So <laughs> we'll we'll move on today. Uh, but no, I'm excited, man. We, you know, we kind of got a heavy topic today, so we're going to be talking a little bit about Tim Keller, and it's a, it's kind of a, a bitter thing for me because, you know, I've never read a lot of Keller's works over the years, but I have respected him kind of from afar, and so, you know, I've, I've liked the fact that as a pastor, he dealt with worldview issues. He would, you know, do this critical thinking. He would engage the cultural issues of the day. But I never really dove into it for whatever reason. I heard about the reason of God and knew that material, so I never read it. But I did use one of his books when I was doing young adult ministry, teaching on vocation and um, labor, and I, and I found it to be pretty helpful. Um, but I was noticing some of the stuff. It was, a, it was an article, I think it was written in eight, 2018 in New York Times, where he was kind of, I, I keep trying to think of a word. Maybe you can help me think of the word. Thankfully, he was arguing against being apolitical, um, but then he kind of gave an, I don't know if it's ambidextrous political, like ambipolitical viewpoint where he was trying to say because there's no neat fit, basically, you know, you can Christianly vote in any direction, which I thought was a a pretty bad argument. But I started noticing um, a lot of the things he was saying. I was like, man, that... On the surface, it just it's it's not ringing true. And but I, but I, on the other hand, I had known Keller to be what I thought to be a reliable thinker, scholar. So I began to dive in the last few weeks, and as I've taken a deeper dive, I've I've kind of like sadly seen a, a, I guess a, maybe a lot of chinks in his intellectual armor, at least in this area. And so I've seen a lot of stuff that I would typically not think someone of his caliber would make these kinds of mistakes. I understand we all, none of us get it right across the board. We all have theological errors. Um, we all, you know, miss it in some areas, but some of his arguments, I found them to be not just mistaken, but like obviously mistaken. And so anyways, you put a tweet up a couple weeks ago 
that I saw, and it was a response to one of his tweets, which said, talking about oppression, justice, etc., doesn't make one a Marxist. It makes one a student of the Bible. So you retweeted that, and you wrote, Sir, a Marxist premise and a Marxist solution on oppression and justice with some out-of-context Bible verses is still Marxism. So we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, that was a nice little soft tweet you threw there, but I thought it was actually actually really fitting. And I believe one of the articles that had come out around surrounding kind of those tweets was this one we're going to be talking through today called A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. Now, what, some of the responses to you were, hey, how could you say that he explicitly denounces and rejects Marxism and critical theory. And in fact, this article in the very title of it, he's saying that he's rejecting it in favor of biblical justice. So how can you say Marxist premises, Marxist conclusions, you must not be reading his stuff. But it's actually, I think, in reading his stuff that it reveals what you said to be true. And that's why I want to walk through this today. Anything you want to say before we jump into the details of this article? I appreciate that. Um as I said earlier, I called myself a thug dynasty when I was <laughs> um, recently. Uh, I was able to connect with one of my high school friends, and she's like, "Sam, you're you're blogging now. You actually sounds kind of smart." <laughs> <laughs> I like that kind of. I love it. Yeah, yeah. They keep you on the it, ground, right? <laughs> exactly. But she's saying that because I was nowhere near, and I'm not an intellectual. I was. Mm. I was a very poor student. Um, I didn't graduate from high school. I was, I didn't take school seriously. I was very frustrating to my teachers because they would always say like, Sam, you have potential, but like, you just don't care. Um, That's a whole different story. Um, It wasn't until I became a Christian that I started to care Mm -hmm. about the world around me and wanting to make the best use of whatever God has given me. But I say all that to say that I recognize that I'm not, I, I, I blog, but I'm not, I'm not an intellectual. Um, I love reading intellectuals. I love, um, you know, I, I, my, my library is all full of just, you know, brilliant men, um, mm. you know, that I'm trying to learn from. And one of those people is actually Tim Keller. Mm. Uh, I, I've read The Reason for God and he's a brilliant man. He knows, he knows his stuff. So, I am not going to pretend I am even 5% anywhere near as intelligent as he is, because I'm not, I never will be. Um, and on top of that, I also know that I'm, I'm not going to be as godly as he is. I'm just not. I know myself, and anyone who knows me knows I'm very sinful. And if I were to become 15% as godly as he is, I would be ecstatic. Um, mm. Now, God is able to do that and more. But that would be incredible grace, which I suppose you cannot uh, disbelieve because God can do all things. Um, nevertheless, I just know myself and I know, I know of him and I know his uh, reputation and everything else. And I chose my words very carefully and I meant it uh, and I stand by it. But I say that because I don't want, for myself, I don't, and, and for others, I don't want there to be this perception that I think I can match him. Uh, I can't even match you guys. You guys are much more than I. Am. No, no, but don't, don't, don't let even, that statement fall to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I almost don't believe your testimony, but that's powerful. <laughs> no, but I, I really, I, I honestly, I'll be honest with you. I'm always thinking, okay, one of these interviews, they will realize I'm a fraud. They will realize. <laughs> 
just keep me blogging. Just, just let me shut up and just keep blogging where I can edit and do all that, you know. But that's, um, that's the, sorry. That's the name. The name of your first album is "I Just Don't Care," and the name of your second album is "Give Me Oil in My Lamp, Keep Me Blogging, <laughs> Blogging, Blogging." I don't change. That's pretty right, good. Sorry, though. go ahead. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Um, but I say all that because, um, like you, I've been following really evangelicals for the last several years and including Tim Keller, some of the things he's been saying. And I recognize that he's a godly man and he's a intelligent man, but on this issue here, he's very dangerously and I would say even destructively wrong. Mm. And, um, my response was actually to clarify why some would say that he's saying Marxist things. Because in the original tweet that you mentioned, he says that talking about oppression and justice isn't Marxism. We all agree with that. Right. That is, um, that sounds like a red herring. Like that's not what people are saying. Cause I'm talking about justice and oppression, but no one will call me a Marxist, right? Blind, so yeah. there's Now real quick, sorry to keep interrupting you. We like to breaking it down for the audience. Red herring, just in case. You know, we don't learn our logical fallacies anymore. It was a kind of bird, right? They threw out <laughs> on the side that was like the, to get the dogs off the trail, off the scent. So in other words, um, explain that terminology with what you're talking about. Yeah. Basically, it's something that distracts from the real point, right? Mm. It's yeah. something that doesn't you know, it might be intentional. Usually it's intentional, but it may not be intentional where um, it is not, you know, it's, it's, it's something that distracts from the original point. So when people are talking about Marxism, they're not saying you can't talk. They're not saying that Tim Keller can't talk about oppression or justice. What they're saying is how you are defining and talking about justice and oppression is from a Marxist view. And for him to say that distracts from the original point. Um, so, which goes back to my tweet, which I know we'll talk about more, but I say I, I was careful to use, I wasn't calling him a Marxist necessarily. Right. I was saying that what people are saying is that there is a Marxist premise and there is a Marxist solution. And there are others, and I would, I would say, unfortunately, including him, who have used some, you know, some text, uh, Bible verses out of context, to give, at the very least, a legitimacy, in their mind anyways, to some Marxist thinking. Um, and that was, that was the basis behind my tweet. Yeah. No, and I, and I think you're exactly right. That's the importance. And, and that's what I found to be a little bit troubling, because I, I, I believe he knows that. Like, he knows the importance of definitions. And the fact that those words have been expressly and explicitly redefined in the academic world and and trickled down already now to the place of the common man that they already are loaded with Marxist baggage unless you explicitly point that out from the start of the conversation. And and I do think you're right. When he gets more explicit, there does seem to be some elements that in the way that justice is defined that are coming or at least impregnated with the Marxist yeah. view of justice. So anyways, I think it might be helpful at this point to jump into that article. There, there are other, if, for somebody else looking into this 
topic, you know, he's, I think he wrote a book in the early 2000s on biblical justice. Generous, I think it's called Generous Justice, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then, um, you know, he's also, like I said, written a lot of articles and, and put out a lot of tweets lately clarifying. And I think it's crystallizing. One person said to me recently, they're like, man, I kind of like that you can't pin Keller down. You know, he'll surprise you. And I thought, you know, at the time I thought, yeah, that might be the case. And sometimes that can be a good thing, uh, intellectual honesty, and maybe not being too um, kind of intellectually partisan in your thinking where you could predictable a mile away. But I will say this, the more I've looked into Keller, he actually is predictable. Once you understand where he's coming from, I think he's pretty consistent in his views. Yeah, you got something there? Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you. Um, I think the best word at times that I would use to describe Mr. Keller, uh, again, with all due respect to him, is that he is vague. Mm-hmm. And when someone is vague, it's to me, only two possibilities. You're vague either because of ignorance or you're vague deliberately. She's Louise. So you have to make the you have to make the the choice there. I don't right. think he's ignorant. He's a very, very intelligent man, as I said. So then what's the other option? Yeah. And it's what concerns me. And I hate saying that. I hate it. I don't I don't like it. But you know, I want to Share that, you know, I, I want to be honest with myself and yeah. the audience. And uh, as you've said, I've read and seen other, um, we'll probably talk about it later on, but there's been some, he's had some uh, panel discussions in circular environments and there've been some pretty pointed questions asked that mm. you would hope that a, okay. a prominent pastor would be able to shed biblical reasoning and biblical insight into uh, that environment, and it seemed to be it, there was vague answers to those questions. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So, you know, basically, and I do some of those you've probably seen, and we haven't. So, I'd love as we get through this, you know, for you to bring those up. But in this article, he he starts out I'll just give a give a quick quick sketch. He talks about the problem we face, and he asks the question, "Which justice? Which justice?" And I think that's exactly the right question. Like, how are we, what, what should our definition as Christians be of justice? How do we define that? And how does it compare and contrast to the quote-unquote worldly or secular ideas or definitions of justice? So he asks that. Then he lays out um, his, you know, quick thing of biblical justice here. And he talks about the history of justice, the traditions. Um, and you can pause me at any point if you want to speak into any of these, if you have any thoughts. But um just wanted to rush through these, the history of justice. He talks about the enlightenment tradition and how the tendency there was to try to find justice without relying on God or without a theology or without theism. Although I would say we were just recently talking to a historian that really knows this well. And he thought, for instance, John Locke was actually very much theologically informed and drawing many of his political conclusions on the basis of theology. But just for sake of discussion, we'll just accept the premise here that Locke and Hume were basically trying to give a godless um, philosophy of justice. Um, And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had Marx, Um, unless you want to respond to any of that so far. Very quickly. Now, this is where my memory could be failing me, but I, I would imagine that in some form, Locke was influenced by the Magna Carta. Um, which was very much um, 
which is basically, you know, b the British uh, built their human rights uh, thinking on the Magna Carta. And that was very much um, theistic. So yeah. that right there, I would disagree with that. And then very quickly, that's when he probably gets into libertarianism, uh, which I'll admit, I'm a libertarian. <laughs> so I was like, uh, you're yes. not quite precise in that. Uh, now, I'm not completely loyal necessarily to libertarianism, which is, um, to me, I'm, my reasoning for it is that I think in some cases it's, it's based on a biblical point of view. In yeah. other cases, it's more based on a practical point of view. Um, so... It's, so it's not something that I think the Bible affirms in every single area. Um, sure. Yeah. But anyway, I think even, in, even with that, I, I would say, actually, I thought he was much harshest against libertarianism than he was to Marxism, which I found yeah. interesting. Because libertarianism, like I said, I don't think it's inherently sinful by any means. Right. I think it's actually a very biblical argument for it, uh, which yeah. we'll get to later on as well. But I thought it was interesting that he was harsher against libertarianism, but then not so much, not as quite as harsh with uh, Marxism or collectivism. Sure. And uh, yeah, spot on with that. I, I would agree. So, you know, basically though, this, this section where he's given the history of uh, justice and he would admit this too, it's a short truncated. So he's probably oversimplifying. I think in that oversimplification though, this, there would be a good discussion that would need to be had is, you know, the different streams of the enlightenment and the fact that some of them like Locke were arguing from a, maybe at least a theistic perspective and other ones like Hume and Marx were not and explicitly so. And do those have any implications for the view you end up with? And I, I think he probably flattened that out a little bit too much here. Um, then he talks about the problem of foundations. Now this, I think, I think you would agree. I don't know your, your views on this topic, but he basically says, um, for the Enlightenment project, it was doomed from the start. When you get rid of God, you lose your objective moral foundation. So therefore, there is nothing to argue for any kind of objective universal justice, no basis to do that, no foundation. That was the best part of the article, I thought. That was you. Me too. Yeah, I thought that was well done. Now, here's where I want to kind of dig in with you for a minute, because here, here's the essence, I think, of what he's trying to do and he gives a brief outline of biblical justice a brief outline so here's where he's going to give his model and then he's going to compare this to what he thinks are the secular views of justice and critique those on the basis of this um and he does make a note that i guess forthcoming is an article where he's going to um give this in more more detail in the future um, and maybe he'll clarify some of the stuff we're going to talk about, but I think there's some immediate problems in here. So if, number one here, it says community, others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Yeah. Others, as he is, <laughs> Brother Sammy is smiling. Um, and I'm smiling <laughs> because we've been hitting on the exact same notes. That's exactly my, one of my biggest concerns with it too. So. Yep, yep. Uh, and so we if you agree with me, you're clearly very discerning. So Listen, I'm, I must be. I must be walking in it, bro. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, we, we, so just so our listeners know, we haven't talked with Sammy about this at all. Um, yeah. We're just coming into this fresh and going through it. But I was talking with Nerva about this today. So listeners, I've just, I want you to pay attention to this as we read it. Pull this article up. You can find it in the show notes. We'll have it down there by faith. It'll be there. Um, so... <laughs> What, it, what he's saying here, others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. He's saying this is tenet one of a biblical view of justice. So you ought to be thinking, okay, what are his reasons for drawing this conclusion? 
Um, the first thing he quotes, he said, the Bible depicts the human world as a as profoundly interrelated community. So the godly must live in such a way that the community is strengthened. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke puts all the teaching on, quote, the righteous, unquote, in the book of Proverbs into a concise and practical principle. And he says this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So I asked Nerva earlier, you know, because we're just practicing the stuff, practicing analyzing, you know, because you want to analyze everybody in terms of the Bible. So we said, okay, does that give any evidence that others have a claim on my wealth? And look at that language. And, And and maybe the rest of this, go ahead, Sam. I don't want to take up all the airtime here, but oh, what are your I, thoughts so far on this, on this argument that he's giving there? Yeah, his, ev- his evidence doesn't back up his claim. Um, when I, I, well, that's one thing that uh, I was very curious because I thought, even though I had some small disagreements with um, everything leading up to that point within, in the article, I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is pretty good. Um, yeah. Generally, so far until that point, I thought, hmm, no. There is, how do I say it? There is a claim on my money, but it's not other people. It's God, because it's not my money. That's the issue there. Like God is the one, I'm I'm a steward of his money. Nobody has a claim to my money because it's not my money, it's God's money. And I am to then to steward it or to use it in a way that honors him. And then that's where the Bruce Watkins, sorry, Bruce Watkins. Bruce um, Watkins, yeah. Yeah, um, um, a quote comes in where I am absolutely to voluntarily bless my neighbors. That's a command, but not they, it's not because of them, it's because of God, right? So I am to bless others voluntarily. So, for example, even in the church, even in the new, in, even in the, um, uh, you know, yeah, in, in the local church, I voluntarily give to the church to bless the the elders to bless the deacons to bless um myself within the church to bless everybody else in the church to bless the community that is if i now i voluntarily do that by agreeing to join the church but that's in obedience to god but nobody has a claim to my money and once you when, when you say that you are already in a very dangerous path uh, which I'm assuming we'll get to that probably too. So I was just maybe, unless you have more questions or. No, that's good. That's good. That's exactly right. And I think what you pointed out, which he does, the interesting part is he says, others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Um, the voluntary part fits. It's the the claim and the must based on a claim that others have rather than, and I, and I told Nerva, I said, I think you could adjust that point by saying God has a claim on my wealth. So I must give voluntarily, but that would change. That would change a lot of his approach. I think if he were to change that, did you have something to add to that? I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because there's one point that I forgot to mention, which is if others have a claim to my money, then it's not voluntary for me to give it to them. Exactly. They have a claim. They have a right to it. Exactly. So, so here's, here's a, here's an example. (laughs) We have a family member who uh, lives in the South side of Chicago. So, they got cameras up to guard their stuff. Well, Joker came in, took their stuff. He found this guy on the street three days later with his stuff True. and went True and story. took it back. 
story. Now we, we all know, we all know that that was right because exactly. it was his. Um, now that guy, even if that guy needed it, and even if he had extra, Ooh, it wasn't, he, he, that guy didn't have a claim on that. If that guy had a claim on that, then he would be wrong to take it back, right? Absolutely. So I, I think that it's, it's pretty straightforward and commonsensical, but scriptural as well. The only part I wanted to um, ask you about, because this is one that I think, at least on the surface, sometimes carries more weight with people, and that's the gleaning laws. He mentions the gleaning laws. What would your response be to that? Um, does that show maybe that others have a claim on our wealth? I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think in the article, I'm forgetting exactly. It's been a while since I read the article, but I think he even points out that they are gleaning. It's like you are helping them work. Right. He does. They're, they're, they're living. Marxism, gleaning was hard, apparently. Gleaning was difficult from what I hear. That is not quite the same thing as you having a claim to my money. First of all, it's God who's commanding. Uh, it's right. part of the Mosaic law, right? God is, com- is commanding all of Israel, the wealthy anyways, that to, to, um, to fund somebody's work, to, to fund them. That is not what Marxism teaches. So I guess if, if you don't mind, let's actually kind of go back a little bit to maybe sure. what you teach us. I think that might be helpful. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know what, one of the things too that I hear is oftentimes people, when they hear the word Marxism, they don't quite, I think, understand sometimes what it means. And then they think, well, yeah. Keller isn't a Marxist. And you know what, I would say, you know what, in, in a sense, Keller isn't a Marxist or what he's saying sure. in a sense isn't Marxist. Sure. But that's because, so generally to make it very simple, Marxism, sorry, Marxism is uh, uh, the idea that history, the, you know, um, history of the world is made up of the oppressor and the oppressed, uh, and the oppressed, and not just that, but that they're in a conflict with each other throughout all times. Especially now, remember that Mar- Marx um, wrote is you know the Communist Manifesto or all his ideas within the right after the Industrial Revolution where you had all these guys who had been farmers and everything else, and then now the whole world is changing. They're now in the industrial age, and they find themselves living, uh, working very long hours for very, very little pay. But yet, meanwhile, you have now all these people, the factory owners, um, who are just now very, very wealthy. And you see that in this new age, the factory worker isn't making a lot of money and then is living in very horrible conditions. Mm. So Mark sees that. And he says, this is just the new incarnation, the new version of a history of conflict between people, between two people, the oppressor and the oppressed. Then, more than that, Marxism is very important within Marxism. He then says that eventually there will be a class consciousness on the part of the factory worker or the, the proletariat or the oppressed, the underprivileged. And they'll recognize that the bourgeoisie or the upper class or the privileged class are oppressing them. They will rise up and they will have a revolution and they will now, they, they will against the, uh, the privileged class. And then they will have the, um, they will be able to control the means of production and they will have a greater, um, greater um, power and that they will then be able to balance it all and then really just take power for themselves. And then there will be a communism, which will then create a stateless society, 
where now everyone, where this is where the quote comes from, everyone according to their ability and everyone according to their need. Right. right? Which is, sounds kind of similar to, I have a claim to your wealth, right? So that is what classical Marxism, I'm breaking it down in very simple terms, but that's generally what it is. So it's one historical, economic, theoretical, philosophical, and also somewhat prophetic, right? Because Marx claims that this will happen, that there will be a revolution. It never happened. The revolutions that did end up happening were not from the factory workers and the oppressed. It was just from political um, elites who wanted to use, uh, who just became fascist through communism. Mm. But my point is, even within that, you have different kinds of Marxism. So you had the um, the the Marx or the Marxist Lenin Leninist um, Marxism, which yeah. is or communism. That's the Russian or the Soviet Union type. You have Maoism, uh, which is Marxist, but yet the Chinese uh, version. You have Western Marxism, which ended up fueling critical theory. So you have all these different kinds of Marxism. You, you could, so in, in some could say, well, the Chinese are not really Marxist. Uh, Fidel Castro, they're not really Marxist. Venezuela, because they, they all have different versions and because they've not really been able to create the communist states, the real communist, the, the class, the, the, the stateless and class society that Marx envisioned. That's because it's yeah. impossible. Marx did not understand human nature, that people are just oppressive. They'll just use anyone they can. Hmm. Nevertheless, I say all that because Tim Keller is not, is, would, not, would generally not be pushing what Marx is, you know, um, you know, what Marx believed. However, the real core aspect of Marxism is conflict theory. That is the very basis, the heart mm-hmm. of Marxism. Okay. The idea that there is an oppressed class and a oppressor class oppressing them, right? And it's really based on a disparity of power. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really what it comes down to. That's why critical theory, they all admit this. Now they're trying to walk back on it. That's why Black Lives Matter says they are yep. a Marxist group, even though they're not quite the same thing. Uh, they wouldn't quite hold to the exact same thing that Karl Marx would believe. That's because they have the very base, the very basic core elements of Marxism, that being um, the conflict theory, that there is groups of people, whether it's gender, race, class, whatever it is, that are always going to be at war with each other. And the only way to solve that is to create parity, which can only happen essentially naturally if you try to establish a socialist state. With all that being said, now I'm forgetting the main reason why. Well, and before we jump on it again, uh, I wonder if you could help us with this. If not, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but some people have called BLM a Maoist version of Marxism. Do you know why that is? What's particular about Maoism that matches that than the other kind of Marxisms? That's a good question. Now, this is one where I will say I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's particularly because Black Lives Matter, they're very friendly to the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Um, And then also one of the things too possibly is in some ways, China, yeah, I mean, this this probably could be, yeah. I mean, maybe it's more to that, I don't know, but China is probably the best example of communism, Mm. which is that they've opened up their economy slightly uh, where in a sense now they're more of a state capitalist uh, nation where they're very authoritarian, but they know that they cannot survive without a form of capitalism. So they've opened up quite a little bit, which is very similar in a sense to social 
was uh, sorry, democratic socialism that right. me and AOC are teaching, um, where you essentially vote for your oppressor. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I'm assuming that's it. But other than that, I want to know the finer details as to why gotcha. that's the case. That makes sense. And I noticed that somebody said they have cleaned up their language a little bit too on their website just recently and changed it because of the pushback. People have been recognizing yeah. who they are. And so now they're trying to hide it a little bit more. But I think the reason we dove into that because we were talking about the gleaning laws and just yeah. um, under having a claim to the wealth. Yes. Okay. The, the gleaning laws, they were not... It, it, it wasn't it wasn't that you deserve somebody else's money it wasn't a it was i guess i was put this way i always struggle with this kind of word sometimes but a redistribution of wealth that's not right which okay. uh, which keller has in other places advocated for right uh, it's it's more of being able to um, um fund somebody else to be able to work right mm -hmm. and it's not that dissimilar to um the temple tax where God instructed that the, the Israelites would pay um, a tax to support the work of the priest and the temple. So uh, Marxism is not about helping somebody work. It's about giving someone money because it's their right. That's not mm. quite the same thing as that. Yeah, sure. So I think you made, you made two good points there. Again, gleaning doesn't, give evidence for the the fact that others have a claim on our wealth. Yeah. Um, and it was also the God's claim on our wealth that he told us how to set up a system where people could work, uh, poor, poor people to work, to gain stuff that doesn't match socialism. So if, if you use this for anything, it can't be for that. <laughs> um, you have to think about that um, contextually and then, and then make an analogy to what would that look like today to help fund other people's work, um, which would be nothing like what you might draw from this. So um, let's uh, move forward here. So um, he does admit, he said, nevertheless, it is not to be confiscated. You are to acknowledge the claim and voluntarily be radically generous. Um, and he does admit also, he said, because he says, because this is, I thought this was a non sequitur, but he said, because God owns all your wealth and you are just a steward of it, the community has some claim on it. Interesting. That, that to me seems to be the leap he keeps making without the connection. What do you think on, about that? I completely agree with you. Um, if it's because God is the one who mm. has a claim to our wealth, we can only, we are only obligated to do what the Bible calls us to do. Right. That's not, a good way to put it. Yeah. So, so that doesn't mean, it, um, so I'm not, I'm not, committed to a community i'm committed to the word of god and what what god calls me to do is what i what i should do what i should love to do and i should uh now again the key thing is you can voluntarily give you can choose to give all your money away that's fine but biblically you are not commanded to do that and the issue here too is of course we know that when you say the community has a claim to that what you're really saying the government has a claim to that and that is not what the Bible says. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet uh, Samuel, uh, Samuels tend to be very wise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the, the prophet Samuel, um, I believe when the Israelites wanted a king, okay. yeah. he said, you want a king? Well, just know he will tax you more than 10% mm. or up to 10%. Why is that yeah. significant? Well, who else was getting 10%? it was supposed to be for the, for, for the priestly work. Mm. Right. Sure. So, you're, okay. so it's, 
it, it's, you know, it's, I find it funny that, that's uh, not funny, but I find it concerning that we are ignoring the very clear teachings of what the Bible is saying about these things. And then, as you said, he will make, he will, he will make a point about God owning uh, or God having a claim to our wealth, but then he will, without showing exactly how he got to this point, move directly into, well, this means that the, the community has a claim to our wealth. And that's not true at all. And if that's true, then how does that apply to abortion, for example? Right. Like, so right now in Canada, I know in the States, you guys have a similar uh, law, except it's gone through. I mean, I'm, I'm referring to I what's called. I'm referring to the um, how government funding goes to Planned Parenthood, but not so they can kill babies, quote unquote, but just mm-hmm. so that they can do other health care work, which right. makes I mean, they're using that money to kill babies. But legally, I think there's some kind of uh, way for them to try to avoid uh, claiming that they are really using that money to kill babies. But anyway, here in Canada that money goes directly into killing babies. Um, mm. Now I know, I know, although hopefully you can talk about that at some point too, but I know that Keller of course hates abortion. I recognize that. Uh, although he has some concerning views as to what that, how we Christians should um, respond to that. Nevertheless, if you say they have, a, they have a claim to my wealth or to my money, well then to, for what, right? What does that mean? And to what degree? Because the world would say the same thing, and they would say that includes killing babies. Then what is the argument that you would use to say, well, no, not for, not, well, not for killing babies? Now, of course, he hates abortion. But then if you said they have a claim to my money, then you already have then given yourself a, um, a, a basis to be vulnerable to that kind of argument from the world. Ooh, so good. Again, yeah, that, that leap from God has a claim to they have a claim is just is is really uh, interesting. And, and you know, I think somebody, I heard this recently, but they were quoting him. They said at one point, he said, ah, I, I'll paraphrase it here, but to not give to the poor is robbery. Hmm. And that, again, goes to what's called the need-based theory of justice, um, that they have a claim to your money. And if it is robbery, it's hard to say, well, why shouldn't the government get involved? Because normally we'd think, man, if somebody robs you, that's where the justice system should enter and bring judgment, bring restitution, whatever needs to happen. So if that literally is robbery, if they literally have a claim, I think he's trying to say, well, that doesn't necessitate government involvement, but that becomes a difficult position, I think, to argue if it is in fact their claim. You know, one of the frustrating things is that for a lot of we, and honestly, we in Canada, we are already well past you guys when it comes to this issue. But right. America, I think you're about to, this seems to be, you guys seem to be gravitating towards this issue that I want to mention right now, which is when we Christians these days oftentimes talk about justice or helping the poor, first of all, there's two errors. We think we're supposed to solve poverty. We're not called for that. That's a good point. Christ says that the poor you will always have with you. It, we're not going to solve that. Does that mean we shouldn't care? No, because the Bible is very clear. We should care, and so we should help the poor. But through what means? Now, the individual can do whatever he pleases in a, in a way that is not, of course, against Scripture. But we forget that when God talks about helping the poverty or, or helping people who are, who are in poverty, it is not necessarily about political work. I think we're kind of lazy on that. It's mm-hmm. about the, the church's role in society, that we, the church, are supposed to be using 
our, uh, our offering and our tithing to support and help the poor. But we now think, no, 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 it's not the local church's job. It's now the government's job to be doing it. So we are now shifting our role to the world now to the government who don't have a good idea as to what justice really is. They don't know what they're doing. We do. We should know because we have the word of God. But instead, we're making God's word about a local church or local church's role into some kind of a fiscal policy, which is not what it was originally intended for. God didn't call us to beg the government to help the poor, but he calls us for us, the church, to help the poor. Yeah, that's good. And, and, And speaking of how to do that, you know, he ends this, this, this first point with this. He says, the view of property, this view of property, he's terming the biblical view, does not fit well with either a capitalist or a socialist economy. And to me, he hasn't argued that. He's just asserting, obviously, it doesn't fit good with the socialist economy if, if biblically, for instance, you say, thou shalt not steal, that implies personal ownership of property. And so you can draw those conclusions, but he hasn't really shown how it doesn't fit with capitalism because on everything he mentioned here, capitalism wouldn't say either way. It would just say you own what you earn. And then I think God's word, like you said, when you submit to God's word, it's a Christian. It would say, even in a capitalist system, you, because we owe our claim to him, we do what he says and we give generously out of that. But that seems to presuppose at least some type of capitalism. I don't know if he has some third economic option in mind, but what are your thoughts on that last phrase? Sorry, would you be able to help me remember what he's referring to when he says? Yeah, so um, he's talking about this view, the, um, the view that others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily, um, doesn't, does not fit well with either a capitalist or a socialist economy. I so p- well, it, the issue with it is, it's because he's being inconsistent. That's why you can't put it into either group. It's neither capitalistic or socialistic because his wording there or premise is inconsistent, or I would say, um, you know, with all due respect, incoherent. Again, yeah. if, it's, if someone has a claim or a right to your money or to your property, then it's not voluntary. Right. So, <laughs> so, so it's co- incoherent, it's very wording. Exactly. So, but if the, if the main, if the center of that, if the heart of that, um, of his wording there is a claim, then it really is actually socialistic because if somebody has a claim to my property, then it means then that I have to absolutely give it to them, which then ends up becoming socialistic. So, um, but again, you can only identify that if you can strip some of the um, again, I'm not trying to be, you know, disrespectful, but some of the incoherent wording within uh, his, um, you know, his article. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that until you just said it, but in essence, he is trying to square the circle with yeah. his wording. And yeah. that's why it doesn't fit in either category, because these two are mutually exclusive, and his own wording is mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyways, um, no, that's good, man. So some of these will go a little faster. But the second one, he talks about equity. He said, everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. And again, I think the, the big word there that if you're doing your Colombo questions at home is, what do you mean by equally? And that's going to be important, because you could walk away from this thinking, especially combined with some of his other writings, 
that he's going to be talking about something along the lines of social justice. Now, he doesn't necessarily commit himself to that in this segment, I don't think. But really briefly, I'll just, um, he talks about um, Leviticus 24-22, you are to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born. And basically, he's talking about equal treatment under law, which we would agree with, right? Absolutely, yeah. And so the last thing, and just because we're running a little bit behind, I won't read all these. Maybe I will read them. But this, this part was, was the part I thought, eh, it just kind of was misleading. So he said, another example of inequity is unfair business practices. Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.14-15 speak of unfair wages. Now, I think many people will read that. And they'll automatically think unfair wages, disparities between men and women, or disparities between whites and blacks. You know, that's, that's kind of the context, or minimum wage laws. So it'll give you that feeling like, oh, this is what the Democrats care about. So I can care about that because that's biblical. I just want to pull up these verses real quick and get your thoughts on these. But here's, here's the verses he referenced. Um, Leviticus 19.13, you must not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired hand must not remain with you until morning. So if you listen to that at home, you'll notice that has nothing to do if you were given to thinking maybe, because he doesn't write these, he just writes the scripture references. So, you know, chances are you might gloss by, and I'm not saying he did this maliciously, but every one of these scriptures he listed, none of them have to do with really what I would term unfair wages. It's simply you know, telling them not to oppress people by withholding the wages they promised them. Exactly. It says nothing about the amount of wages, if that's what you were thinking. Absolutely. So then the next, the next one. Um, Mind if I quickly. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. It reminds me of the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard where. Yes. <laughs> where, yeah. One of the, well, you, you guys had to talk about that before or something? Or we did, but say it again. Say it again. Oh, okay. Where, and I'm forgetting the entire, I'm forgetting all the parable here, but essentially I think one, uh, you have this this group of people who I think have been working in this vineyard for maybe several hours and yep. they get paid a certain amount. And then you have uh, another person who I think works for only an hour or something like that. And um, the master uh, decides to give him the same amount of money as he was everybody else. Am I remembering things correctly here? Yep. Okay. And then the other guys who've been working there for several hours come and complain saying, wait a minute, we've been working here all this long for all this time. And this person comes for about an hour and here you are giving them the same pay. And then the master says, I can give them whatever basically I want to because it's my money. I'm deciding. Like I said, I'm paraphrasing things. It's been a while. It was kind of dangerous or risky to mention it. You know, what <laughs> but the point is, it's on the person. Like when you choose to work for someone, it's a contract. He chooses the value of the work. It's up to him. If you think it's unfair, biblically, that would actually be sinful. It's not because they choose the value, and then you choose to see if your work is. Um, you, 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 they choose the value of the job, and then you choose if that's worth it for you. Right. If afterward you have accepted that agreement and you complain about it. That's sin. Cause then you're being ungrateful and you're, and then you're not, you know, um, appreciating God's gift in that manner. Mm -hmm. So the idea about unfair wages, if 
someone is in his heart doing in a greedy fashion where he knows that 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 job that particular job is worth more than what he's given them they're not sinful nevertheless generally if the if the um, say for example the factory owner believes that the salary he's giving to the factory workers is reasonable if he believes that and then um, the factory workers decide to agree on a contract and they work for that, that is not an injustice. That's not unfair wages. It's up to yeah. both parties to choose what's fair for them. And that's the agreement. That's the contract. So when we say unfair wages, what does that mean? It does biblically, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It becomes a matter of subjective uh, reasoning. And then you start to say that that's an injustice. Then you say then, then that um, the, par- the master in that parable then is now an evil master. That would right. be the implication, which really then is really, of course, a parable about Christ. Then you end up calling Christ an evil, unjust master himself right. because he decides what's he decides what's right and good for us. We don't decide that for him. Oh my. That's an excellent okay. point. We interviewed uh, Dr. Larry Reed. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he wrote a book called was Jesus a socialist? And he uses that exact parable to show if sometimes people use that to think, that he was promoting socialism. He said it's exact opposite. Actually. Um, he has the ability to freely choose what to offer the guys and they choose to work for it or not. And in this case, I think you're exactly right. If, if you talk about if by unfair wages, you mean the disparity in what they were getting paid per hour, that person actually, that wasn't unfair at all to call it unfair is to call that person parable unfair, which is in turn to call Jesus unfair because he seemed to prop that person up as just in that case. Um, but yeah, so these, these verses that he puts here, this, the second one was, um, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says, do not oppress a hired hand who is poor or needy, whether one of your brothers or one of the foreigners residing within a town in your land, you are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. Again, this has nothing to do with the amount paid. This has to do with paying him like you said you would pay him on time, the amount you said you would pay him. And then the last one, he actually he wrote Amos, Amos 6, 5 through 6, but I think he meant Amos 8 um, because that would, didn't seem to be the right passage. But it's, it's the same thing here. We can Where it's talking about um, they took the wheat, they reduced the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales and said we can buy the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals and even sell the chaff. So they were, they were being dishonest in this case of what they were actually selling, which again, I don't, the unfair wages thing, to term it like that to me just seemed like intentional misleading by using that language. Yeah. And that was it. Um, so that... I think you walk away from that number two point um, equity and that everyone must be treated equally with dignity. And you might think, Oh man, we got to work for equal wages, minimum wage laws, stuff like that. And it has absolutely nothing to do with that. Any last comments on that point before we move to the next one? Yeah, I think you've mentioned all of that. I mean, if I always get back to this point, if minimum wage, um, you know, was, justice now if someone wants to argue about what's better practically that's one thing right. uh, well although i will say um given that parable i mentioned it would be an in- i think it's an injustice to force um a business owner to to pay someone a certain amount um but that's perhaps <laughs> a, a different a different uh, conversation but 
Um, yeah, I mean, in the Mosaic law, God gives us the very foundation of justice. So when you're saying something that's contrary to Mosaic law, then you're the one in the wrong, not God. Mm. And unfortunately, he's saying things here, or he's implying things here that is contrary to the Mosaic law. Sure. And um, this one I really want to get your input on. Uh, number three, corporate responsibility. He says, mm. so he said, I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Yeah. And so he gives the examples here, and I don't know if you want to comment to one, one by one, but we'll just start with this one. He says, corporate responsibility, Aiken's family, Joshua 7, did not do the stealing, but they helped him become the kind of man who would steal. And if you don't know this passage, if, uh, if you're listening, um, I think it was where he took something, they were in war, and he took something from one of the tents. They weren't supposed to take any uh treasure or anything from the war and he did it and they ended up punishing they killed him and his family as part of the mosaic law and i think he's using this as basically sometimes we're corp held corporately responsible he also gives the daniel 9 um, where daniel repents for sins committed by his ancestors even though there's no evidence he personally participated in them second samuel 21 where god holds israel responsible for injustices done to the gibeonites by king saul uh, and then one last one here where he says um, in First Samuel 15, 2 and Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 8, where he holds members of the current generation of a pagan nation responsible for the sins committed by their ancestors many generations before. And the three reasons why are corporate responsibility, corporate participation, and institutionalized sin. Thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so I don't remember every single, uh, and help me um, mm -hmm. uh, going forward, but with Aiken, so using that, say, let's just start with that example. It doesn't say anything, it doesn't say that the family was responsible for his sin. It just means that they suffered the consequences of his sin, which is not new. Um, we, we, like this, this is something you see throughout um, in our, our world today or even throughout the, the, the Bible where it doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible is very clear that God will not visit the sins of the fathers on the children, at, meaning he will not blame the, the child or the children for their father's sins. And I mean, and if, if that's the case then, right? So um, my father, for example, was abusive towards my mom. Am I guilty of that? Do I need to repent to my mom for that? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, that's not biblically how it works. And then with Daniel, Daniel, now again, I've not read all these, but from just going from maybe a little of my memory and correct me, um, if you're more, I'm sure you're more familiar with it than I am right now, but Daniel was a prophet where he's, he's as a prophet, you are, you're representing your nation or the covenant mm. you say, in a unique manner where now I don't know if he was himself. Um, guilty of that sin as well, but even if he wasn't, um, as a as a leader or as someone who was representing the nation of Israel within that covenant, it is not. Um, it's, he's not saying he himself is responsible for that. That, but that he's representing the nation of Israel that's responsible for that sin. That's not quite the same thing as um, me being as an individual being responsible for another individual's sin. So good. No, I, I think that's true. So. Um, yeah, I, it would be, you know, I would love to, if you get a chance to write an article down the road, just on corporate responsibility, uh, and dig into each of these passages in detail. And I think, you know, you could probably subcategorize it. Some of it is Israel and there's 
covenantal representative. There's federal headship at times. And I think failing to make those distinctions yeah. and just drawing this broad conclusion that, yeah, God held people responsible for other people's sins because they were part of some group doesn't seem to follow. Did you want to add something to that? Yeah, and uh, I'm actually planning on writing an article about it at some point because I know he wrote an article about de- for Desiring God where he expanded on this stuff in a much more broad sense. But then also I mentioned to you earlier that there was a, there was a, um, a uh, panel discussion between him and Brian Stevenson, and he mentioned these, that very same um, that idea as well. But he put it right in terms of white people apologizing or okay. repenting. Um, much like the BT had said uh, some a couple of years ago, for other white people's sins, that which is why he he mentions the corporate right. responsibility aspect. How do I? I'm trying to be careful. How do I? Say <laughs> um, that it's a shocking statement from a pastor. Um, First of all, there's so many theological problems within that. If are you are we then saying like what? You see, the issue with corporate responsibility is that it tends to put the risk. It focuses on apologizing or repenting to other members instead of to God, mm-hmm. which seems to me that it's an admission that you recognize that you've not really responsible for that sin. Because if I'm guilty of a sin because of somebody else who's like me, which I'll get you in a second, then that means then that when I go to God, God is going to hold me accountable for that sin, which is preposterous. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm guilty for my own sin. Mm. More than that, the premise is because somebody else who was white may have sinned, you as a white person is benefiting and is responsible for that sin too. It's ridiculous, and honestly, it is completely foreign to Scripture because now you're doing what the racists do, where now you are identifying groups of people or you are identifying individuals with other individuals just because they look the same. It's ridiculous. It's actually quite racist because you're saying, because Jim Bob, right, from (laughs) the 1800s may have been a racist. Why you got to talk about my cousin like that? (laughs) Because Jim Bob from Alabama or something owned a slave and he was racist towards that black slave. You're saying that some Norwegian who's moved to America over the last 30 years is not responsible for that sin as well, too. You are then judging that person and condemning that person because he's white. It's racist. On the other end, what about me? If other black people hurt white people. Do I need to? Uh, do I need then to repent for that person just because I'm black? That's racist, right? It's ridiculous. Now, which is why it goes back to uh, what you said, uh, Seth, about the importance of recognizing the covenantal uh, aspects of corporate responsibility or the federal headship, because those things are they're they're not. How do I say it? They're not. Um, they really do define a group, right? So as a Ghanaian, I am, I, 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 well, I can't say me, but um, the president does represent Ghana, right? Um, when the president goes to war, I am at war as well too, as a Ghanaian, right? That's, that's unique. 
but as a as black people it's just a skin color so why is it that white people need to repent just because they look similarly to other white people it's very i mean it's it's very divisive and destructive it is not biblical at all and it's very dangerous so i am quite disappointed and, he, and he's made he made this that he said the same thing in front of an unbelieving crowd where he didn't address the gospel and he was asked a question about um how do you uh how would you what would you say uh he was asked this by a, an unbeliever and uh, it was what what how should christians react to racial justice how should they achieve racial justice and he essentially said i would was mostly vague and he said that i would i would just concur with everything that brian stevenson said now remember brian stevenson in this panel discussion has been now he does some great work um himself uh, if you don't if you don't know him he is mm. he is the man um i said he there's a movie called just mercy recently okay that's yeah it, yeah it's actually about him so he does great work, you know, um, in some cases anyway, when it comes to, he's a lawyer, he's doing some good work helping free uh, innocent black men who, who, are, who have been put into jail. And he's doing great work there. Nevertheless, his ideology is not biblical when it comes to justice. And he's mm. putting social justice and critical theory in this part of the conversation. And then you have Mr. Keller saying, he concurs with everything he says. Mm, so, well, yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. And I think, what I'm, what I'm seeing here, you can tell me, I'm trying to whittle it down, you know, and just get out of the details for a minute and, and kind of lift back up. But it seems like the way Keller has been doing this is he's taking biblical ideas and kind of really twisting them out of what they meant and getting it as close as he can to then take like a really, really fast run and try to leap from that to something that's currently cultural oh boy. Um, the, and, it, and he's not really making it, but I think in post editing, he's making the jump, <laughs> uh, if that makes sense. And so he's like, you know, he's just, it's, he's cashing this out as though it's biblical justice, but he's really distorting these biblical passages in favor of giving cover to people that are more leftist in their thinking. Um, to be a great, sorry, go ahead. No, is that, what do you think? Is that an accurate? Yeah, he wrote a, an article for the New York Times a couple of years ago where he essentially said that socialism is compatible with Christianity. He did say that. Now, he didn't say mm. that he himself was a socialist, but that he mentioned that, wow. uh, it's a long story, I won't get into it, but basically that he's a friend of his who ended up going to Scotland and that's, that friend of his saw these Scottish godly people who were very socialist, and he was shocked that you could have socialists who are very godly Christians. And this person then came out thinking that, well, I guess you can be a socialist and be a Christian. Well, I would say to that, yes, you can be a socialist and be a Christian. Of course, of course you can. In the same way, you can be a racist and be a Christian. In the same way, you can get an abortion and be a Christian. In the same way that David murdered another person, committed adultery, mm. and was still a Christian. The point is, you can still do unbiblical things or believe unbiblical things for the mo generally okay. and still be a Christian. Um, but the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, right? And even if now that applies to me, you, or politicians, right? It doesn't, stealing is stealing no matter who is doing it. So anyway, yes, that's, uh, he seems to be saying things where um, he is giving some um, a cover to pursue 
um, an unbiblical or leftist uh, view on uh, justice. And and these reasons that he's given for cover, just again, you just pointed this out, but they, I'm like, really? Like Tim Keller made that argument? Because, you know, we've all had friends that have went somewhere and they were like, man, they're really good Christians, but they were this and, and did this unbiblical thing. Like, or, you know, like, man, the, I can't believe um, I met these Christians and they're, they're pro-gay. They firm, you know, pro-gay theology, but they're so loving. And none of us would say, oh, man, it must be okay. We would all ask, is it biblical? Not, did you meet some person who has some good qualities, they're kind and nice, and they hold to false ideas? That argument in that very article, I was like, wow, I can't believe he put that forward with a straight face. Um, so anyways, um, to, I know we don't have a ton of time left, so let's, let's just jump into kind of talking a little bit about the libertarian aspect because he gives that spectrum in, in, all the way on the one side he has Marxism is in the parentheses, but he, it's uh, postmodernism, which views justice in, in terms of power, he says. Then he says utilitarianism, which views power in terms of happiness. And then a little further over is liberalism, which views um, uh, justice in terms of um, what was that fairness. And then libertarianism, which views justice in terms of freedom. And then he gives a critique of each of them from a biblical perspective, he says. And youth said he was a little unfair, which I thought he was unfair to libertarian as, as well. I thought the, I told Nerva I thought he set up a pretty weak straw man with libertarianism so he could take it down. And the part of that that I really thought um, that he kind of kind of missed out was this idea that any libertarian would argue that it was wholly on the person's merits themselves, the outcomes. So that word holy, he said, you know, um, it's biblically speaking, there's way more to a person. We're much more complicated, but I, to date, I haven't met any libertarian who wouldn't admit that same thing. So talk, talk to us. What are your thoughts on his uh, views about libertarians and how you would respond as a Christian libertarian? Yeah. Um, now, if I remember correctly, he mentions that, as you were saying, that libertarians believe that um, poverty is, um, I'm, I'm struggling to remember, okay, but I think he says that people can be poor just because, I'm trying to remember exactly how he phrased it. Yeah, I can, let me read it to you real quick. Actually, will you read it, babe? My voice is turning. You got it, though. This view recently argued by Robert Nozick believes in a small number, in a small number of individual rights, but not entitlements. Persons have the right not to be harmed, an absolute right to private property, if fairly earned, and to the rights of free speech and free association. The first way to guard these rights is to have small government, since high taxes are unjust, a violation of the right to private property. And a large-scale government inevitably seeks to regulate speech, thought, and association. And this next paragraph is important to go Okay, the second way to guard these rights is to have an unregulated free market. The libertarian view is highly individualistic based on implicit assumptions that every human being belongs to him or herself and that the outcomes of anyone's life depend wholly wholly on their individual choices and efforts. And that's the part. So speak into that. Of course, we don't believe that. Um, we, because I think he mentions that you know there are there are several reasons why people can be wealthy or, or less um, right 
more than others. And the, the different yeah. factors, no recognize that, right? There's, it could be something as like, you know, natural disasters or just your parents or just a number of random things. Um, but libertarians, that's not what we believe at all. We just believe that um, people and society will flourish better. People are free to choose for themselves. And not just that, as, not, not even just that, I'm going to be very careful how I say this, but I'm, as I said before, I'm a libertarian for two reasons. One, because I think it's more practical in some sense, but in other sense, I think it's also more biblical. Of all those options there, I really do believe is a more biblical um, uh, view. Because, for example, biblically, all the things that he mentioned there, the Mosaic Law is not against it, which is that every man is responsible for himself. The king's the priest in Israel were not responsible for giving people entitlements, right? Um, if you're going to receive any kind of entitlement, it would be from voluntary or private uh, donations. So my basis for believing that that freedom is best for society and best for individuals is based on the Mosaic law, which does not give the government the authority to, um, to really have control over someone else's life. Now, of course, which as you, you know, as you know, people should have the right to, uh, you know, right to life um, and uh, liberty and property. And biblically, all those things are what's, what's, what's affirmed. There's nothing else in the Mosaic Law that would be directly against that. That's good. And I think a key word you just used is more. Libertarianism is more in line. Yes. Yes. With the implications of the Bible. And I think that's an important point that I'm like, man, I just, again, I'm like, really? Like, he seems to present this argument consistently, like, if it's not a complete neat fit yeah. with any of these views of justice, therefore, it's a free-for-all. And Nerva, you said this, <laughs> use this analogy the other day, like, in, in telling someone, you know, when they're dating um, someone like, yeah, you know, nobody's perfect. Therefore, your dating process doesn't really matter. Just, just marry whoever. Like, it don't matter what their background is, their character. Everybody's imperfect. Nobody's got great, you know, ideal character. Therefore, if someone just, you know, killed their sister last week, kicked their cat, and who cares, you know? And so it's this idea, this leap from not a neat fit. And I like, um, I'm, I'm going to try to find this quote here. There's a there was an article a while back that J.P. Moreland wrote on just arguing for a limited government from a biblical perspective. You know, he was acknowledging that some people, you know, people will often say Jesus wasn't Democrat or Republican. You know, he, he came not to take sides, but to take over, all that kind of stuff. And it all has an element of truth. And he said, but while Jesus is neither a Democrat nor Republican, there are things he taught about morality, the state, and the church which a believer should factor into his political, social, and cultural thinking and practice. And some of these teachings of Jesus could favor one political party over another. Absolutely. I, I think it's simple and to the point. It could favor a, an economic policy over another. It could favor a, a prison. It doesn't, doesn't have to be a neat fit. Anything on that? We're not called to implement the Mosaic Law or a theocracy um, in uh, our society, although there are some Christians that I love who might disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd be wrong about that. So to me, then it's okay, how can we best, how can we obey what we know to be true? And what I know is that the Mosaic Law is, it gives us the 
the groundwork or for how to understand justice. And I, I just cannot fathom how a authoritarian nation would be in line with the Mosaic law. Um, with that being said too, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there is, I mean, there, so, there are some things that are so clearly sinful. There are some things where it is very implied about um, how sinful it is or how impractical it is for a Christian. But even all then, and I'll, and I'll be, you know, okay, so that, tech, that tweet you mentioned earlier about the Marxism thing wasn't the only thing I had said in response to Tim Keller um, um, recently. I think about last week, he mentioned how essentially the Bible, very much what he'd been saying before, very kind of vague language, giving credence to every kind of idea, where he was saying that the Bible isn't, you know, you know what, can I actually read it? I have it here somewhere. I don't yeah, want to yeah, say it. Very quickly. Um, yeah, as Christians and the freedom of conscience and politics. The Bible blinds, Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any practical strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity may be good and wise. It may even be somewhat inferred from other things that Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded. And therefore we cannot insist that all Christians as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. Um, actually, that's actually not the main thing I wanted to actually read, but we already addressed that. But then after that, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't leave it here, but after that, he talks about the exact same thing, but as it relates to abortion, where he's saying that concerning abortion, the Bible, you know, abortion is evil, it's wrong, but the Bible does not give us how to, uh, it doesn't tell us what policies we should support to end or decrease abortion. Mm. The word decrease there is very important. And um, you don't want to read too much into someone's thinking. Um, I want to be faithful in loving him to not assume the worst. But given the context of it all, given that whole thread about saying you can vote essentially for different kind of policies concerning, you know, either socialism or big government, all that kind of stuff. He seemed to be suggesting that you could, you could support a pro abortion politician as a Christian, because by doing that, because the idea is a very popular myth right now that I'm actually going to write about very soon. Um, which is that pro-abortion politicians, especially the Democrats, that when they're in power, they actually decrease the, level, the rate of abortions in America. Mm. That's a myth. It's not true at all. Okay. Nevertheless, the idea that you can vote for a pro-abortion, someone, a politician who believes it's justice. So I think just, just last night, Bernie Sanders mentioned that um, that abortion in America is a constitutional right. right yeah. yep. You would vote for someone that believes that murder is a constitutional right, a human right that pleases God. How? I, I just, and I've, I always ask this, what if it's five-year-olds that's being talked about? Mm. What if it's 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds? Mm. I would imagine it would be a no, no, like it's wrong to do that. Well, then why is it wrong? Which makes me concerned. I'm not saying this is true for, um, for uh, Keller because I believe him when he says that abortion is evil. I really do. But when you are suggesting things like that, you are then implying that the, pre-bo- the pre-born baby's life 
isn't quite as important as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old because we're saying it's okay to kill babies. Wow. Okay, and we would vote for that person. So now it doesn't mean you have to vote for a pro-life person even. I wouldn't know why you wouldn't, but it doesn't mean you have to. But it doesn't mean that you should vote for someone who's actually a pro-abortion, pro-murder politician. And if now we think that it's, you can be a Christian and do so in good conscience, and he seemed to be saying that. And that's a concern. I say that because all this stuff here isn't just a matter of differences. Yeah. There are consequences to ideas. We're either going to be fostering and pursuing and establishing justice, or we're not. And we'll do the opposite. And again, I respect uh, Keller. I am not as godly as he is. I am not as wise as he is. But on this issue here, he's wrong. And I think he's very dangerously and very, um, you know, very um, divisively wrong. Hmm. Wow. No, I, I think you're right about that. And that's well said. And I do think we're at a very, man, it's, it's, a, it's an intense time we're living in. It's a very important time. It's a tipping point moment. And I think we have to, many of us, look beyond even our favorites and say, man, so true. let every man be a liar, <laughs> but let God be true. You know, and I think that um, in this case, I think he is, you know, widely missed the mark and, and dangerously so and, and giving cover to people feeling like they can consciously vote for not only not the side that's working for justice, but actually a side that's promoting injustice in the name of justice. Yeah. And that's what, you know, if, if, if we are correct in our thought that the biblical justice would work against socialism and would protect the basic rights of individual human beings, and that's the function of government, then at this point, at this stage in history, to vote for the party platform that the Democrats have ascribed to is to not only, it's not like he's positioning it to vote for another side of justice that's not represented in the Republican side, it's to actually vote for injustice. Yeah. And it's to vote against justice of, of a great degree where, you, you, like you said, I think that's part, it's like hard, if we haven't done much thinking about abortion, I don't know why it's easy. I guess the propaganda over the years has gotten to people, but they're able to separate it out. But you're right. If they were rounding up, you know, a million of a group of people per year and saying, we're going to legally allow them to be killed. Yeah. Can you imagine the outrage? And, yeah. But we don't apply it consistently. We are really of like, we are basically there, the first generation of Christians that, are, that have embraced Marxism as a mm. viable option for a Christian. Mm. I've been reading a lot of uh, Spurgeon on this issue, and he did not mince words on it. Mm. Uh, you know, remember that he was um, generally somewhat, uh, he, I, I think, was preaching in the 1860s or something like that, and generally then, which is, at the time, Marxism and socialism was very, well, was becoming, was burgeoning a little bit in, uh, in, in Britain. He did not mince words about it. He, he, he said it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different philosophy. It is not compatible with Christianity. And, of course, every time socialism has really been embraced by a political uh, group or a nation, the first thing they go to is the church. They attack the church. Yeah. And yet now you have many Christians who are either kind of linking socialism or who are embracing socialism, and that's a concern. 
Um, mm. You know, so um, so either we have to make a choice here. There's only two possibilities. Either we are somehow living in a more just society. We understand justice better than the you know I guess the last several you know hundreds of years of Christianity when it comes to addressing this issue, or we're just now more unjust and unbiblical on this issue than they were. And unfortunately, I think it's the latter. Man, I'm sorry, but I didn't let you talk much. Did you no, have any words you wanted no, to add? No, I think good. I, this was awesome. And I, I love the fact that this was sort of a good, um, not exercise, but a good talk about just honoring the person, but critiquing and using your critical mm. thinking and biblical understanding to assess, okay, this is in harmony with the kingdom. This is not in harmony. And unfortunately, like y'all said earlier, we are living in those times where even our favorites, even the <laughs> biblical leaders and pastors, and you just have to be careful and you've got to be in your scriptures for yourself and really understand the word and understand the times we're living in because uh, in this age of social media, I mean, um, tweeting something means it's... <laughs> truth and that's just the biggest mm. lie ever some of the biggest um lies come through media so just be aware be careful and let's go ahead let's just be uh about about it about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well thank you saying how can they stay how can the listeners stay in touch with you um yeah they can find me on uh, all social media platforms at slow to write.com sorry i slow to write i mean they can go to my blog at slow to write.com and then if they feel willing to check it out, I just started a Patreon a couple months ago. They can check out my Patreon too at Slow yeah, to Write. And um, yeah, that's yeah. support, support. If you got that money, yes, go on and invest it in fertile, fertile ground, man, because yeah. you are on the front lines. I follow, you know, his Twitter. He's out there doing battle in, a, yes. in an honoring way, but but challenging people on a biblical basis. So, so awesome. um, thank you so much, man, for spending this time with us today and helping us think through this a little more clearly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to our interview with Samuel Say. Again, don't forget you can watch these interviews on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. We also encourage you to follow us on social media. Twitter and Instagram is at freemindfm. And you can find us on Facebook, freemindpodcastfm. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget we have bonus episodes where you can access the entire back catalog of bonus episodes, Q&A with previous guests, and a whole lot more at patreon.com slash freemindfm. Donation of any amount per month will get you access to all those and future bonus episodes as they come out. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to look out for the next episode coming out tomorrow, Tuesday of this week, as we continue these comments, and that is with Jacob Brunton and Cody Livolt from the New Christian Intellectuals. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.